Good morning. As some of you, I'm sure, is aware, there are some very archaic state laws still on the books. In Vermont, it's illegal for women to wear false teeth without their husband's approval. <laughs> Salem, West Virginia, it's against the law to eat candy less than an hour and a half before the church service. Parents understand that one. In Illinois, it's illegal to give lighted cigars to your pets. According to Michigan state law, wives need their husband's permission before altering their hairstyles. Pittsburgh has a special cleaning ordinance on the books that bans housewives from hiding dirt under the rugs. <laughs> and in Memphis, Tennessee, a woman, woman can't drive a car unless there is a man with a red flag in front of the car warning the other people on the road. Texas law states, when two railroad trains meet at a crossing, each shall stop and neither shall proceed until the other has passed. In Alabama, it's illegal to wear a false mustache that causes laughter in church. In Minnesota, a person may not, under any circumstances, cross state lines with a duck atop his or her head. <laughs> New Jersey, it's illegal for a man to knit during the fishing season. In North Dakota, it's illegal to lie down and fall asleep with your shoes on. <laughs> While we point these out, there's a conversation that we're going to tune into that feels somewhat archaic and outdated. Uh, we find a conversation about hairdos and head coverings. And what we need to figure out is what is this passage saying? And what does it mean? And what does it mean to us in a time where the kind of customs and the cultural expectations are so different? Uh, at any rate, let's tune into the conversation if you have your Bible, read along, um, or follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. 
For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, (laughs) it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Uh, We probably wouldn't choose this passage unless we were moving our way through 1 Corinthians, but it gives us an opportunity to establish some things about how do you understand a passage like this? What do you do with it? A couple things. One reason we need to understand the passage is a portion of it has oftentimes been pulled out and and we just take that part out, but leave all the other stuff about coverings and uncoverings and stuff like that. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Um, that passage is used to put women in their place inappropriately, I think. And in my church, growing up, there were these little doilies that were at the... Uh, beginning outside of the church. And so if you really wanted to take this passage seriously and you're a woman, there was these little doily things you could you could fire on your head. Uh, anybody remember those things? Anybody sure? Yeah, some, some of you remember those uh, little doilies. And so um, this passage really, though, is not about wearing hats to church or about proving that women are intended to be subordinate to men. Um, the command, let her be covered, reflects cultural norms that existed in the first century, we've got to understand that. I mean, what was the big deal? Covered, uncovered, in our day it's not a deal. In that day it was a deal. So we need to understand what was happening in that day. Um, God could have communicated to us using timeless phrases, but he didn't. He could have done that. He could have created this means whereby beings appear in the sky and say things that are not culturally defined. He could have done that, but he didn't. What God ended up doing is entering culture. And so to understand what God is saying to us in a passage like this, we need to understand the culture in which these things occurred. We need to understand what the cultural norms are so that we can answer the question, what does it say? That's observation. Once we've observed, then we're in a position to say, okay, interpretation, what does this mean? And what does it mean to me? Let's take one of these, let's take this one at a time. What does it say? I think we understand to some degree head coverings. You can think of cultures, can you not, where women still wear head coverings? Muslim women, uh, that's still wear head coverings in our day, in Paul's day. Uh, Similar customs existed. It was disgraceful for Hebrew women 
to go out with their head uncovered. It was a sign of immodesty. When their head was uncovered, it was even worse when women let their hair down. It was uh, to, to go out with loose hair in public was a great disgrace and was considered grounds for divorce. We say, this is crazy. These are like archaic laws. And, and what we need to understand, if we're going to understand what this passage says, we need to understand the, the rules, the customs that existed at that time. Yeah. Um, similar customs existed in the Greco-Roman Empire. It was shameful for women to unbind their hair in public. It was a sign associated with prostitution or with the kind of things that occurred in cult worship, where men would unbind their hair and go into ecstatic utterances with respect to what the gods were saying. So Paul talks about, and he tries to create some order with respect to hairdos and head coverings. An uncovered head, when Paul talks about it, could mean a couple of things. And we don't know exactly, but it means one of two things. It means a certain kind of hairdo or the absence of a head covering. A hairdo with her head uncovered was a way to talk about hair that was not put up, you know, not tied up or pinned up or it was just let loose. That was uncovered. That was one way to describe an uncovered head. To have the hair tied on top of the head rather than hanging loose was a sign of a woman who was chaste and modest and a woman to be respected. And what Paul seems to be doing is supporting the custom of this kind of hairstyle for women so that when they are praying and prophesying in church, they will not be distracting. He talks about hairdos. And he talks about head coverings. Uh, the, the culture looked askance at women going about in public without a head covering. It had sexual connotations. And if you see literatures, sculptures of the time, women had coverings on their head. A veil or hood signified that the wearer was a respectable woman, that no man dare approach without risking penalties. It's interesting. If you went out without a veil on your head and you were attacked, the one attacking you could claim extenuating circumstances. I couldn't help it. She had her hair unbound. Oh, okay. She had her hair unbound. She had it coming to her. You know, this is crazy. But that's that's what existed at the time. That's where the that's how they operated. Um, public worship as in Hebrew culture, men and women separated. What was interesting, and it created tension in the church, that men and women came together in the same living room. That's the church met in homes. There was proximity. And there was a kind of a disintegration of norms that existed prior to that time. And what Paul wants to do is do what he can, so that when people come together for worship and men are seeing women, maybe, who feel freer in Christ and they might not want to, but Paul is trying to ensure that men will not be viewed as sex objects, 
that they would be being sized up. And um, Paul doesn't want women to be ogled as sex objects during worship. Paul's interest in this passage is that for several reasons, women should keep their head covered. Paul urges women to keep their head covered, but he, to men, he does the opposite. For um, what men did when they were praying, especially in Roman cults, they would put a toga over their head. It was as a sign of praying, and it was a sign of Roman piety. They would take the toga, put it over their head, cover their head, and they would then commune with the gods. And what? And so, why Paul tells the women. You cover your head, he says to men, you don't, because that is associated with this type of worship. And because of the association of this practice with pagan devotion, um, a man doing that would shame his head. This is Christ. Why is this a problem? Why is this going on? really don't know exactly why. There's a couple of things that probably could be happening. Um, some imagine that it might be kind of an expression of Christian woman's lip. At that time, women were best seen and not heard. But within the context of the Christian church, especially in Paul's ministry, there was a freedom given to women to be in leadership. There's a place in Romans where it talks about Phoebe being a, and it says a servant, but the word for servant is diakonos. Phoebe was a deacon. It says Junia was outstanding among the apostles. Junia was an apostle. Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Priscilla was the man. Usually the person in that was the higher ranking one, their name was put first. Aquila was the man. Priscilla was the woman. And when Paul, he put women in leadership. And that didn't last for very long. This is what happened. Women had been without a voice. And within the Christian church, initially with Jesus and with Paul, they were given status. They could serve. They were seen as individuals who had things to contribute within Judaism. It was seen a waste to educate your daughter in the law. It was considered a throwaway. Again, there was discrimination based on race, class, and gender within Judaism, and all three of them existed. And then in the early church, things ended up coming free. And here's what ended up happening. Those who wanted to gain a following and wanted to create their own following, what they would do, and again, understand this, they would appeal to women and say to those who had not had a voice, you know what, you can have a voice in our church. Now, what they believed about Jesus was not exactly right, but that's not what they led with. What they led with is, you are respected in our church, and women flocked into it. What ended up happening? That some heretical teachings were disseminated into culture through 
appealing to these women who hadn't had a voice. And you can understand what could happen in that context. That's why Paul says, I am not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because of the problems that were coming into the church because women were being targeted as means whereby some questionable theological teachings were being disseminated into culture. And Paul and had to kind of put a kibosh on it. And so he says, I am not now permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It's got to be, it's got to stop. And we're going to talk about why he would make a decision like that. But what we do know is that he was correcting a situation that existed. There are passages in the Bible with respect to discrimination that are directive passages. We're going to talk about that when we look at what it means. There are directed passages, but there are corrective passages that are dealing with situations that existed, and this is what we have here. So there could have been then women who are throwing off a sense of having been subjugated were flaunting their freedom in a way, feeling alive and free and, and maybe not being as aware of what they were communicating culturally by throwing off some cultural values and mores that might feel good, but that would bring the message into question, because this is what we'll find. Paul's primary objective is not equal rights. Paul's primary objective is the gospel. And when there's a stress between equal rights and the gospel going out, what wins in Paul's? The gospel wins. Because ultimately, if the gospel is followed over time, discrimination will be, if the gospel is heeded, and we'll, and we'll look at that. Um, so that might be happening. It might be that men and women are blurring gender distinctions. Paul seems to give the idea that women with short hair and and men with long hair, and and we don't know what was happening. We do know that Corinth was very sexual, and again, to Corinthianize, in that culture was a word for fornicate. So it was that associated, and so there was a free willing, highly sexualized, and and so we don't know exactly what was happening, um, but it's possible that some women were shortening, cutting their hair really short as kind of an expression of being liberated. The problem was is that the shorn head was associated with prostitute who has been exposed and so that might be what Paul is seeming to be and all these little things Paul is wanting to guard the reputation of the church it might be too one more thing that since churches met in homes and a woman would not go out of the home without her hair bound up but people were coming into the house and that's where churches, that's where churches met. So, well, I'm not going out, so I don't have to do up my hair, and that might be part of the issue as well. So, at any rate, what's happening? The Corinthian women seem to be 
experiencing some freedom in their spiritual status, but they are maybe breaching sexual decorum. And it's Paul's concerned about what's happening. He confronts the problem. Look what he says in verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Paul basically says everybody's got a head. Um, Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. When you talk about head, though, between individuals, you don't usually say one person is the head of another person. It usually has to do with community when it's speaking of subservience. That's So the head doesn't denote sovereignty of one person over another, but sovereignty over community. What does the head mean? It, I don't think it means dominance. It doesn't mean one. the head is a person like a husband who subjugates the wife. That's not what it means for headship. Uh, to be the head of a group of people means to occupy the position at the top or front. Um, I don't think Paul's point here is to assert the supremacy of man or the subordination of woman. The point is that what one does or doesn't put on one's physical head either honors or dishonors one's spiritual head. I think that's his point. Women who don't cover their head do not just call attention and bring shame to themselves, but in that culture, they bring shame to their husband. A man who covers his head, brings shame to the one who is seen to be to Christ. So what you do reflects upon somebody else. That's what the point that Paul is making. And he wants people to think not just of themselves. Don't just flaunt your freedom. Think about what you're communicating and think about what's important. Um, that's what that's what he seems to be doing. In this gender-divided shame, honor, culture, the head of the family publicly symbolized the family's honor. Members of the family behaved in public so as not to bring disgrace or dishonor to their head. Men who, again, participated in public worship wrong, they were seen to shame Christ, and the same thing with women and men. Um, By being Chaste and respectful and modest, women communicated good things uh, about those with whom she was most closely associated. And then it ends up saying something that really seems kind of odd. Again, we're getting through this, looking what it means. Then we're going to look at what does this mean to me? Um, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. We used to, growing up in Massachusetts, you hear this, that we had bats around our place. And there was a tale about bats that you always had to have a hat on. You ever hear that thing about bats? You know, you have a, you know, bats fly around and a bat gets caught in your hair. I don't know what will happen if a bat gets caught in your hair. Anybody ever hear about this stuff? Anybody? You know, you, you want to wear a hat, bats get caught in your hair. Um, and so, you know, so it's a little bit, you almost get the sense that angels are flying around. You don't want an angel caught in your hair. You know, because, you know, then when you think of it, and again, this is not what Paul means, but it's kind of weird, symbol of authority, because of the, because of the angels. 
I could think, though, you know, I'm not sure what bats could do to get out of your hair, but angels carry swords. <laughs> That's not a good thing. And the, and the swords are big. They're not just little clippers. Anyway. Um, to have authority means actually to have the right to do something. A symbol of authority means that you can do something, not that you can't. The head covering, I think for the woman talks about her ability, her authority to pray or prophesy in public. That's one thing that Jesus did value, is the spiritual contributions of women. And the Christian church, especially initially, and especially in Paul's ministry, opened the doors to women to see themselves as equal members of the body of Christ, Pray, prophesy, and, and so the symbol of authority on her head was a symbol of, you go ahead. You can pray. Now, guys, don't you do it. Don't you put something on your head, because that makes you look too much like Romans. But women have a symbol of authority over your head, but you are to use that so that you can feel free. Um, it was seen that angels were seen as keeping order. That's what angels did. And especially under the Old Covenant, and it might be that this symbol under, indicates that you're not under that previous covenant anymore. You're under a new one. And in this new one, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In Christ, discrimination based on race, class, and gender has been done away with. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Racial discrimination doesn't exist. Slave nor free. Class discrimination doesn't exist. Male nor female. Gender discrimination doesn't exist. Might be. Paul backtracks, lest the Corinthians become confused and thinks he implies that women are inferior to men. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Um, makes it clear men and women are independent and equal in Christ. Okay, that's what it says. What does this mean? What do we do with this? It feels archaic. It feels old. You know, we're not going to put doilies out front, and, and so I mean, you can put them on your head. And, um, what does it mean? It, there is, as we talked about when interpreting Scripture, there is a difference between directive and corrective passages. There's some passages that are directive, that say this is the way it is. This establishes the norm. And with respect, with respect to discrimination, the passage in Galatians chapter 3 is directive. And what it says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's the way it is. Now, the problem is that we don't see that in Paul's writings. If he really believed that, wouldn't he be more of an advocate of equal rights than he is? And he talks about slavery. I don't think Paul would have believed that slavery was God's will. Yet, 
what he says to slaves at that time, and it creates some trouble. It was used to argue for slavery. Is that Paul says, slave, remain in subjection to your master. Why would Paul do something like that? It seems to me that what Paul has to do, his ultimate objective is the propagation of the gospel. And what needs to happen for the gospel to go forward is racial discrimination needs to be done away with. It needs to be done away that the only one God cares about are Jews. That's not appropriate. And so Paul has to do away with racial discrimination. And But he can't undo discrimination all at once. It will create too much chaos. And so he doesn't. He does the thing that is necessary to do for him to do what God has called him to do, which is to be the spokesperson for the gospel. And what that means, he has to let some other things exist because they're not primary. So he doesn't tackle class discrimination, although I think he would have had clear views about what God would want, but God doesn't put things in place all at once. I think Paul has some clear ideas about gender discrimination, but he doesn't overturn those cultural values either. What Paul understands is this. If the gospel is understood and believed, if it is remained in, and people start to see themselves as being loved by God, love begets love. And what he understands is if you're going to insert one thing in culture, Insert the gospel when it is believed and understood. It will create love. Love will create respect and honor, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's why Paul, when he did one thing he made sure is that people understood the gospel and the message of the gospel um, It's interesting that to throw off social structures then, it really didn't work that well. We saw it in other cases where Peter and Paul talked to women about follow this and follow that. The other thing they dealt with was the Roman Empire. The Roman government was very conscious of family values. They felt that a family that took and kept its family underneath social rules was a way for the Roman Empire to kind of to continue to exist. There was a cult of ISIS that came in that indicated that, no, women, you throw off any kind of submission to men. And what ended up happening, the Roman government identified that cult and removed it from the empire. That's another thing that Paul had to deal with, is he had to insert things that would accomplish the objective, but he had to fly under the radar a little bit. He didn't have the freedom to be able to to overturn social structures because he would sacrifice something that he didn't want to sacrifice, which is the gospel. Um, what it means. What does this mean to us? What it says, 
2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, Paul writes, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You know what this verse seems to say? Don't major on minors. Don't major on minors. Major on majors. That's what we'll end up saying. What ends up happening is those who, I remember I told you about this, and I'm very quickly, I remember when I was um, at Yogi Bear Campground as a, as a, an attendant checking cars as they came in. This was when I was in college. And um, a woman came in and talked about only 144,000 go to heaven and, and Jesus wasn't born on Christmas and, and I was confused. I didn't understand. What are you talking about? And then she came up with this, that, and the other. All these little minor things. I was very troubled by this. I didn't know the Bible at all. I, I had just become a Christian and was trying to learn this. And I went to this beachfront place to learn how to share my faith with other people, be with other college students, learn how to be a follower of Christ. And I was into it, and I didn't know anything. But this really confused me. And so I remember I ended up kind of getting alone with God. I said, God, I don't understand what's happening here. This feels like something's wrong. And But I don't know what it is. This this focus on all these little things, nitpicky little things, it doesn't feel right, but I'm confused. And I ended up saying, if you could do something, I'd like to be clear about this. Anyway, so then I went back there, and I didn't hear anything. But she came, and and it occurred to me that I just asked her for the sake of, okay, we're talking about all these little things. I asked her, okay, by the way, what do you think of Jesus? And then she started to go, hamana, 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 hamana. I said, well, that's an, well, you believe he was, he's God, don't you? And she goes, well, I said, oh, my goodness. Isn't that interesting? So there's all this drawing attention to these little minor things, but with respect to the major things, that's what happens, isn't it? Pulling in on the basis of things that are confusing, and it draws attention away. And then we're able to say, she told me, she was Jehovah's Witness, and nice person, but I, I got to understand her views, and we talked, and, but she really wasn't clear about who Jesus is. That's a big thing. That's a big thing. Uh, don't major on minors. There's all kinds of little minor things. Some people believe that only this version of the Bible is the version of the Bible that you should read. Read that version of the Bible. But don't, that's not a, that's not a critical thing, is it? Some of us have been being baptized by immersion. Some of us have been baptized other ways. Don't make the big thing about immersion or how you were baptized. You know what to make a big thing about? Who is Jesus? You know what a big thing is? If you want to put a big thing on this, what is the gospel? You want to be clear about something? Be clear about what the message is. What is the message? This is what Paul lived or died for. 
This is what he focused on. What is the message? And we've talked about it, and it feels like we are, as culturally, are so caught up in these little things that as the church, we're really not clear about the message. We've given the message a word. One word, it helps us to understand what the message is. It's the message of reconciliation. That's the message of the gospel. Reconciliation is God taking a relationship of enmity and hostility and turn it into one of peace and goodwill. That's the message that we have been called to believe and extend, which is God is not mad at you. Now, that feels strange, but that's the message. We are supposed to be ministers of reconciliation. And and if we get clear about the major things, it can help us. Look what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 3. Preach the word. The word literally is the message. And we've talked about it. One way to define the message is the message of reconciliation. You want to talk about something, talk about that. What does it mean that God has created a relationship of peace and goodwill with you? Set aside this worship or that worship, this experience or that experience, this Bible study or that Bible study. Set it aside. I want you to think about that. Just make some room for it. What? Does it mean that God reconciled you to himself in Christ, not counting your sins against you? He initiated on his behalf, not unilateral, it's unilateral. I am telling you that we no longer have a relationship of enmity, but one of peace and goodwill, peace and goodwill, peace and goodwill. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. I want you to think about that. What would happen if you thought about that more often? What would happen if you made more room for it, if it occupied a bigger and bigger place in your mind? God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you. I told you about, I'll tell you very quickly, an individual who made a really bad choice, and he ended up going into county jail. And being in county jail, this was a while ago, he um, asked to be put in solitary confinement and because he was scared stiff. I remember his dad asked me to go see him, and I did. And I asked him about how he got there. He, he made a bad choice. He, he went for a ride with some guys. They went in and robbed a store. They said, hold this. And they had him hold, I think, a, a pistol. And he held it. Anyways, he was, police came. There he was. There he was. Bad choice. Not a bad kid. But he was there after he was. And so he was in jail and he was, he was scared spitless. So I went and talked to him, and I said, so, yeah, geez, how went it, man? He goes, boy, I don't know what I'm going to do. So we ended up talking about, okay, you know, do you know what God's attitude toward you is? We talked about the new covenant, that he puts his law in your mind and writes it on your heart. He forgives your wickedness and remembers your sin no more. This guy, really, literally, he stopped me. 
He said, say that again. Say that again. I told him, like, this is what the text says. Does it really mean that? I said, yeah, it really means that. He said, I've given up on living a life that God would accept. I could never do it right. I could never keep the rules enough. But but this is really the way he operates? I said, yeah. I said, give us some thought. Okay, went away, and then I came back a couple weeks later. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm out of solitary. I said, oh, it really happened. I was really surprised. Yeah. I said, why? If God's with me, what do I have to be afraid of? And for him, it was just that obvious. He's with me. I mean, why am I afraid to walk around in among the prison population? Because God's with me. God's with me. You know what it means when the word be still? I mean, when God says be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. It means to let your arms hang limp at your side. There's two reasons why Israelites let their arms hang limp at their side. One was when they were confronted by an enemy that they could not defend themselves against. They had no way to defend themselves. There was a time when the Israelites were confronted by the Midianites, and they just went because they had no way to defend themselves. That's one reason that you let your arms hang limp at your side. The second, not when there's no way to defend yourself, but when there's no need to defend yourself. That's what this guy experienced. God's with me. I mean, I don't have to put up my dukes. But again, I'm not sure how well that worked. But he knew God was with him, and it gave him a sense of, I'm good. Are you going to crash? Are you in a crash course with disaster? Are you? Your retirement? You sure? Your health? Your family? God will never cast you adrift. And he'll never leave you behind. You know what? You can't end up in a God-forsaken place. Because God will never forsake you. Never. Never. Goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life. Why? That's the message of reconciliation. He really doesn't want bad things for us. And as we believe it, it changes. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. Don't major on the minors. Major on the majors. Preach the word. Do that. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Um, this is the focus of the Bible. I'm going to read a passage, and then we're going to close. Here's what Jesus prayed. In terms of what was on Jesus' mind, and I'll just, just listen to this. It's the night before he's going to die. And he is praying to his father in John 17. And this is what he prays. He had been praying for the disciples, but then he prays 
for those who will believe in him because of the message. So he looks forward to those who believe in him and in the message. Can I see how many here are the ones that he is speaking about? Anybody here believe the message? Anybody here? Get your hand up. Anybody here? Again, okay, so here's what he prays for you. Here's what he prays for you. I do not ask for these alone only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. I in them and you in me. May they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What he ends up saying, what the basis for unity is, you are loved by the Father as much as he loves his Son. You are loved as much as he loves Jesus. That's what it indicates, that your acceptance is bound up in Jesus. So what's true of Jesus is true of you. He loves you as much as he loves his Son. It's not a matter of degrees. That's the message of reconciliation. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And as we understand it, it really does change our perspective. Don't let somebody take and pull your mind into the minors. Minor on the minor, major on the majors. Um, Jesse, come on up. We're going to close this on. Father, thank you for um, your word, and it came to us within a context of culture and understanding the cultures, asking questions, learning about the cultures helps us to get a grip on some of the things that you communicate. But there are things that you communicate that are the major things that shine out from the Bible as a whole and your purposes to enfold us in a loving embrace, this is real. It doesn't mean that everything goes well on this side of eternity. Some difficult things happen. There's discriminatory things looked down at by individuals, judged because of race, class, and gender. We don't live in a perfect world. Yet. Yet. There will be that world where there will be no discrimination based on race, class, and gender, when we will be sons and daughters of God, and we will understand being loved forever. In Jesus' name, amen.